We all know the truth. More connects us than separates us. But in times of crisis, the wise build bridges, while the foolish build barriers. You raise walls, I destroy them. Let's see who prevails. Just because something works doesn't mean that it cannot be improved. I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Allow my sword to join you in the fight against evil. The world needs us to chase dreams. We have to dedicate ourselves each and every single day to this fight because I can't do it alone. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines. The power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful. To make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us all unite! Welcome to the Skippy Family Show. I'm Paul. I'm Kate. And today on Signal Boost, we have Ada Hoffman here to talk about the outside. Say hello, Ada. Hi, it's nice to be here. Well, welcome to have you on the show. Well, both Kate and I have read and loved your book, and but probably most of our listeners have not read The Outside. So why don't you tell our listeners about The Outside? All right, so The Outside is a space opera with some cosmic horror elements. It's about a universe in which there are super intelligent artificial intelligences that have set themselves up as gods. And they are trying to protect the universe from Lovecraftian things. And this one autistic scientist named Yasira is caught in the conflict between them. And there's lots and lots of rich world building in this novel. This, this, this novel throws lots of, lots of my jams into, into the same peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And it was most delicious. And I think Kate agrees with me. It was Kate who told me, read this book, wasn't it? Yes. Well, um, it's halfway through the year, and this is still, I think, the best sci-fi, new sci-fi novel that I've read this year. And Paul and I read a lot, Ada. Oh, God, it's so, nice to see you. Thank you. Yeah. So, Ada, the Cthulhu Mythos in Space is a relatively unexplored concept. What were your inspirations for this core idea, and what is your favorite story or novel in the mythos? Well, you know what? It's kind of interesting because I didn't start with wanting to do Cthulhu Mythos in space. What I started with was actually some characters from a fantasy setting. I had been playing D&D with them, which is the dorkiest thing ever, but I wanted to move them from D&D into an original setting. And I thought, what's the most original thing I can do that won't just look like D&D with the serial numbers filed off? And I ended up with space. I was like, all right, let's put them here. I love it. <laughs> Interesting. I've seen D&D characters filed off in all sorts of fantasy novels, but to stick them into space with AI gods and Cthulhuoid beings, that, yeah, that, that's, I didn't expect. Yep. <laughs> Your protagonist is neurodivergent. And so is another one of the characters. And I was really interested on how, you developed the two of them into such different characters. And the one question I had, I know that the older Dr. Eviana Talir seems about a generation or maybe a half generation older than the main character, Yasira. Yes. Yasira seems to have benefited from having a neurotutor and yes. Eviana has not. Did I get that right? Yes, that is correct. Okay. So what I was really interested in was since this future, one of the beautiful things about it seems to be that 
It's really envisioning a lot of a better life experience for neurodivergent people as far as like society understanding and people learning to cope, you know, both as as neurotypicals dealing with a neurodivergent and vice versa. What do you see neurotutor as as doing for a person? Well, so the way I imagine the neurotutors, there there are other people with um, the same forms of neurodivergence. So an autistic person like Yasira would have um, autistic peers who are a little bit older than her and who have signed up to be neurotutors. And they just help to kind of mentor her and explain to her some of the skills that she can use to make her life a little bit easier dealing with things like sensory overload and other difficulties that she might run into but coming from that place of experience where they know what works because it's worked for them instead of having someone coming in from outside and saying well you have to obviously conform in these ways i don't get why it's hard ah that and i don't think that's actually spelled out in the book but that's what i was imagining eviana has not had the benefit of neuro tutors but she has had a unique experience um, her growing up because she's the point of contact for the outside. What has that done to her? Well, I'm not sure how much of this I can say without being somewhat of a spoiler, but right. um, but definitely because um, because at a very young age, Eviana was identified as being someone with um, maybe more of a predisposition towards outside. And so the gods intervened and tried to correct that through therapy. But um, it wasn't necessarily a very nice therapy and it didn't necessarily have the effect that was intended. Um, and, and Eviana also comes from a different culture. She's from a different planet than Yasira. So even for people who aren't necessarily in her position with regards to outside, um, the different resources that are available for disability are different in, in different cultures in, in this world. So Yasira happens to come from a particularly good one, but it varies. So as, as we pointed out, Yasira is autistic and there are other uncommon neurophenotypes in the cast. I was thinking like Enga, for example, what do you think what do you think it is the importance of depicting such characters in genre fiction? Well, um I'm autistic myself and it's nice to see characters I can relate to <laughs> in in books. I I enjoy that not just because it's enjoyable for me but because I think that also helps other people who aren't autistic to understand better when there is more accurate and sympathetic representation. Absolutely. I agree. I agree entirely. It it was a breath of fresh air. Yeah. Well, and it helped me think about um, autism in a slightly different way. I've got two young cousins who are both on the spectrum and I don't get to see them very often, but I'm always wondering what I can do to better communicate with them. And so anytime I get to read a character like that, I learn from fiction better than I do from nonfiction. And so I just want to take a chance, this opportunity to say thank you, Ada, very much, because I feel like I learned and grew from reading this book. Oh, that's really excellent. I'm glad it was helpful. So, so Ada, how did you decide on the various AI gods and their various portfolios, to use the D&D term? <laughs> Well, I in in this in this universe, um, the AI gods, the the reason that they have consciousness that they're more than just computers is because they actually take in human souls after humans die. That's kind of how they power that part of themselves. And so I thought it would be fun 
because you know there's a lot of there's a lot of fictional mythologies that are dualistic it's like well the good people go here and the bad people go here after they die and i'm like well how can i be a bit more creative than that so i i started thinking about what are different ways you could sort people besides just being good or bad and so i came up with just these different almost these different motivating principles people could have like there's a god who takes all the people who are just especially driven by the pursuit of knowledge for example that's Alethea one of the gods um and so so that's how I categorize them is just by listing all the different like kinds of people in that respect that I could think of okay and so one of your characters that we haven't talked about yet Ysira's girlfriend productivity which yes. I just love that name so much, and she goes by <laughs> Tiv for short, is described on several occasions as a good girl. In what way, especially, I don't want to spoil anything, but she's a bit more of her own person at the end of the book. What is it about her that counts as good in this universe? Well, it's interesting, a lot of people have had questions like that, and I think if I was writing the book over again, I might have phrased it slightly differently, but the reason why Yasira, the narrator, keeps describing Tiv that way is because I think there's something about Tiv, um, she's just a very caring person and a person who wants to always do the right thing and there's something about that that Ysira doesn't entirely trust she thinks she's always looking at Tiv and thinking do you actually mean this nice thing that you just did or are you just trying you know are you just being nice and so it's not necessarily the healthiest attitude towards Tiv on Ysira's part but it's one that I can somewhat relate to I can't always trust it in that way when people are nice to me (laughs) that sounds really bad I may have drifted from the intent of the question I'm sorry no, that's fine. So I took this a little bit as um, Yasira almost reminding herself that Tiv is kind of orthodox as far as the gods are concerned, right? Yeah. Right, yes. Yeah, okay. Because it is always Yasira, I think, that refers to her as a good girl. Yes, it is. And is that also... saying it out loud, it's, it's, yeah. but it's something she mentally says to herself as a narrator. Yeah, so almost as like a reminder... Well, I wouldn't necessarily call it a reminder, but I think part of it also is that Yasira feels insecure because Yasira is not, she doesn't feel that she's very good herself at always doing what's, you know, what's kind or what's expected of her or what other people will like. And so she almost sees Tiv doing that and thinks, oh, she's better than me at that. Is Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. <laughs> They're all just really wonderful characters. And speaking of other characters, I've been struggling for days to come up with how you pronounce this alien's name. The the, the spider alien, the linguist. Cisperinithus. <laughs> Cis, Cisperinithus. 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 Okay. How in the world did you come up with Cisperinithus? Because, oh my God, most ridiculously charismatic freaking side character I've read in a long, long time. So oh, yeah. Actually, also from the D&D game. <laughs> I, I will tell you I will tell you this D&D anecdote if you would like me to <laughs> yes please do all right so so on a very on a very early adventure these D&D characters they were going through a dungeon and there was this one um there was this one character in the party who was a pacifist and she had a magical aura of peace that could stop intelligent creatures from attacking 
uh, which is very weird in a D&D game that, that you have this feat because um, it's such a violent game normally. But so they're going through this dungeon and they run into this scary giant spider and they're like, oh no, scary giant spider. So the the healer character who who has this calming ability, she's like, okay, is the spider intelligent? Does it have a language? And I'm like, um... And I looked in the monster manual and sure enough, this particular kind of spider speaks common and under common. So I just had to improvise into existence this ridiculous spider who's suddenly talking to the party and negotiating with them and being really confused why he can't just eat them. And so... <laughs> oh my god. I yeah. want to play... I want to I wanna play a game that you DM someday. <laughs> I bet you Paul would too. Oh, you, you bet. I mean, I usually more GM than the play these days. So yes. <laughs> just, just as a fan point of view for a second, I would read a whole book of Cisperinathus's adventures. <laughs> well, I don't know about a book, but maybe a short story at some point I could do. <laughs> I would settle for a short story. I'm not greedy. <laughs> Quite, quite a character, I agree. Speaking of monstrous things, so this kind of leads vaguely into my next question. So the middle to late part of the novel, we get them landing back on the planet that's now being, spoil, slight spoilers, um, being changed somewhat by events. And it feels like a piece of an apocalypse, post-apocalyptic novel. So... So I, th- I think I already know the answer because you already talked about D&D. How did you decide to design the monsters and the other threats you see her and her team face when they're, when they're wandering this blasted landscape full of all sorts of nasty things? Well, for that part, I really mostly kind of went from what I'd already decided about outside, which is just its properties that it's not really fully knowable and it doesn't obey the laws of physics or reality the way that you'd expect. And so I just kind of went through and I was like, all right, they're walking through this landscape. It's all screwed up and surreal. What's the most surreal thing I can write here? Okay, let's just let's just do that. Like it was kind of that kind of process. Hiding in barns and people not quite trusting once they realize how much Ysir has been touched by other things, strange rituals, large creatures. You you, you throw the kitchen sink at the at the reader as as, as they're trying to make their way into this, this very crazy mission that you've got them going on. I enjoy kitchen sinks. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Michael Moorcock could probably have taken notes on from you if he was going to go back and rewrite. Uh, I'm thinking, especially in the Elric books, whenever Elric or anyone is going through having to deal with what the Lords of Chaos have done to a landscape. I am very flattered to hear that. I read the Elric books ages ago. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> Blood and souls for, for my Lord. For Lord Earth. Earth. Yes! <laughs> uh, so that leads me into my next question, which was, besides the obvious Lovecraft, and you've obviously read some space opera here and there, who, who would you consider your big influences or people that you're trying not to be like? That is, that is, that is such a tricky question and it shouldn't be but I just feel like every time I read something cool or see something cool that influences me slightly and then so I have to tangle out well which one is how much and that's that's difficult there are definitely some authors that I look up to especially in 
well, I mean, there's lots of authors that I look up to, but there's some I especially look up to in the specific area we were just talking about, about kitchen sinks and having the weirdest, craziest ideas. China Mieville, I look to, I look up to very much in that respect. And uh, Catherine Valente is another one. Um, I don't know if I pronounced her name correctly, but um, people like that who are just constantly 7 million ideas at once. And I'm just like, yes. <laughs> I thought of uh, China Mieville a little bit while I was reading this, too. If it wasn't the Lords of Chaos, it must have been Torque. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, this does feel very much like Perdido Street Station in some regard. Just having th- this intersection of AI gods and very strange levels of technology and forbidden levels of technology. Uh, so... So this actually wasn't one of my written questions, but it c- comes to mind. So what was the inspiration for the for the angels basically trying to put shackles on human development that way? Well, that was mainly um, that was mainly actually a practical consideration because I had I decided that instead of D and D gods, we're going to have computer gods that are very advanced artificial intelligences, and I thought, okay. Well, if we have advanced AIs that are gods, and we also have humans using computer technology, which is somehow not gods, it's just going to be very confusing to deal with, and I don't want that confusion. So let's just have have a clear separation between the gods and everything else that humans have access to. And then the way I made that separation was that just, oh, they outlawed it. That's convenient. They they have their own technology, and humans can sometimes use it like the the Ansible-like technology, for example, but otherwise... But it kind of reminded me a bit of Charles Strauss's Singularity Sky, where an AI become goes transcendent and then just puts vast restrictions on what humans can do, mainly to protect its own existence. I have not read that, but the trope sounds familiar. Okay, then we'll go into the last fun question for you, Aiden. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anger versus Wonder Woman. Who wins and why? You know what, I'm going to say Wonder Woman wins because she's an actual goddess, but it would be quite a spectacular light show of a battle. Anga's pretty, pretty, pretty vicious. I mean... Anga's pretty I, good, yeah. She would, she, would, she would give Wonder Woman a run for her money, but Wonder Woman would win. Okay, explain quickly uh, who Anga is for our audience. That oh, yes, Anga is one of the angel characters, so I don't remember if I actually explained this concept in the interview or not, but the gods have cyborgs working for them who are called angels. Um, and Anga is one of them, and she has guns for arms and is uh, quite capable at what she does, but she is also has some brain damage and some speech apraxia, so she actually never speaks aloud. She only speaks through text messaging with the other angels. So she's another non-neurotypical character, but in mm-hmm. a different way from Ysira and Aviana. She's she's awesome. I, I I I I liked a bunch of your characters. I did like I did like Engo, especially in her interactions with the other angels, and just like she's just like tired of all this. It's like <laughs> Engo is so much fun to write. <laughs> the end of the book, you've moved everyone around a lot. Lots is still going on. Sequel. I am hoping that there will be a sequel. It's not completely worked out with the publisher yet, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm crossing my fingers. <laughs> More than one? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, too. <laughs> I think we all do. And listeners, my gosh, um, if I didn't convince you in my book review on the Skiffy and Fanti blog that you need 
to get your hands on this book. I hope this has helped you decide because I'm serious. This is the best book I've read so far this year. It's lots of fun. It's challenging. The characters are great. There's a giant spider who is also a linguist and an incredible smartass. I mean, what else could you want? Lots, lots of currency world building, interesting yes. characters, characters you don't normally see. No, normally see. There's even a time travel element, readers. I mean, this. The, I mean, when <laughs> Ada puts the kitchen sink into this, she puts the kitchen sink. <laughs> and it's all very tasty. <laughs> So, Ada, why don't you let us know where we can find you and your work? Uh, yes, you can find me at my website, which is adahoffman.com. There's a hyphen between Ada and Hoffman. It's otherwise straightforward. Um, there's two N's in Hoffman. Uh, it's, this is always awkward to do by audio. <laughs> yes. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter. On Twitter, my name is xasymptote because I apparently did not believe in easy to spell Twitter names. Uh, if you if you will <laughs> search in the search bar for Ada Hoffman on Twitter, that's probably the best way to find me on Twitter. Honestly, <laughs> thank you so much, Ada, for joining us and telling us about the awesomeness about the odd side. Even though Kate and I kind of already knew, but mainly for our listeners, thank you for telling our listeners about the awesomeness of the outside. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And thank thank you, Kate, for. Uh, writing a shotgun with me on this. Thank you, Paul, for writing Herd on this craziness. And thanks, listeners, for joining us once again on Skipping Fanny Single Boost. Please go check out Ada's work. Goodbye for now, and scene. Welcome to the Skipping Fanny Show. I'm Sean, and today on Single Boost, we have David Wellington, author of The Last Astronaut, to talk today about that particular work uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show hi sean thanks so much for having me so let's kind of start with the the real quick easy question which is tell us a bit about the last astronaut it's kind of a, a a fun work and it, it is an interesting foray into some of you know kind of a different direction from some of your previous work it's interesting because it's hard for me to know what to say about it i get a lot of reactions that people love this book and people are really enjoying it and i'm like it's so dark. It is so evil. It is just such, it, it, it's a work of horror. And I, I wonder sometimes if like, I'm getting this incredibly positive reaction and I wasn't really expecting people to say they had fun with it so much. I think it's, it's such a dark book and it's so scary that, uh, it kind of surprises me. Now, of course I love it, but then I wrote it. So The Last Astronaut is a hybrid horror and science fiction novel. I, David Wellington, am the author of many science fiction novels and horror novels, and I decided I wanted to see if I could try my hand at, at sort of mixing the two. And I think it kind of worked. I think what happened was I got something that's like bigger than the sum of its parts. It's the story about uh, a retired astronaut, Sally Jansen, who gets called back up by NASA because they desperately need someone to lead a mission to explore an object that has entered the solar system. It's it's a large, might be a spaceship, might be a meteor, they can't tell. It doesn't, it's not responding to any signals, but it's definitely from, of alien origin. And so Sally Jansen and her crew uh, are supposed to go check it out and see if they can make contact with it. And then everything goes horribly, horribly wrong. There, there are a bunch of things I, I'm very curious about, but I want to start kind of talking the horror angle a little bit first before we talk a little bit about Sally Jansen and the space program stuff. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I thought was really interesting about the framing of the book is it it does this thing that 
a lot of interesting sort of space horror do, which is like there's some strange thing out there and the people go out and things go horribly wrong. But it's set against this interesting backdrop of a sort of very realistic, not totally absurd future that, you know, theoretically could really happen. And I was curious how you were you sort of drew on your, your past work where you were going straight into horror and some of your more science fiction work to kind of build this thing leading us into space space creature whatever we want to call it space space scaries uh, i'm just really curious about your kind of path to making that into space well the big plan the project for me was to do something that worked both as a horror novel and a science fiction novel and so i knew i had to kind of start from a place um from a familiar science fiction kind of condition so it's it's a story about nasa it's a story about astronauts and it is rooted pretty heavily in the real world, although the world as it will probably be in 2055. I really wanted uh, to start out with sort of the sense of wonder and the sort of grandeur and the majesty of space that you get in good science fiction, uh, so that then when the horror starts, it, it's it's even that much more scary. Like, space is scary on its own, but it's also beautiful. It's There's something incredible about exploring space, about getting out there and seeing other worlds and, you know, being weightless and looking back at the earth and seeing this beautiful thing. And so by capturing that, it gave me a chance to create these characters who have something more to lose. These are very human characters. They're people who have relationships back home. They're not just the kind of cardboard characters you see in a slasher movie where you kind of hope they'll get killed because it'll be entertaining. You really, you worry about these characters when things go wrong. And, and I think that it really kind of uh, adds so much to the story. Now, don't get me wrong. It's absolutely a horror novel. <laughs> this is the culmination of years of me writing about zombies and vampires and everything else. I kind of wanted to look at this. And so when, when you're talking about aliens, the thing about aliens is that they should not be understandable they should not be familiar or recognizable in any way they should be something that is completely outside of our experience in a way that say zombies definitely are not zombies are just us they're they're dark reflections of human beings aliens have to be totally outside of our experience totally not understandable and so i was kind of coming from that angle and thinking well that's one of the scariest things possible right what you can't understand but you know is it hates you uh is 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 uh that's about as scary as it gets so yeah i think it's it was absolutely important to me that it do both jobs that it work as science fiction and as horror and i think i might have pulled it off <laughs> well so you made me think a lot just then of of the very different types of people going out into space and and meeting aliens and it made me think of two very distinct ones. One is obviously alien. When they meet an alien, but we can kind of, it's sort of anthropomorphized. And so there is an element of it feels a little bit human, even though it clearly isn't, versus something like Arrival, where the closest thing we get to that humanity is the way they, they, they have a communication strategy. But otherwise, like they're just nothing about them makes sense to people. Uh, and so I thought, I think it's interesting you talking about this idea that you wanted your aliens to really be outside of anything we could understand. And that seems like, and I don't know if you would agree, but it, it seems like a really tough task just because of, of the way we interact with the world and how we're always trying to sort of anthropomorphize and 
turn things into stuff that is understandable. Is that something you kind of directly address in the book? Or do your characters not have time because they're trying not to die? <laughs> uh, well, I don't want to give anything away about the book, but it, the book is all about communication. It's about trying to come to an understanding of something that you have no common reference with at all. So that's a pretty tough task, even for, you know, astronauts who are well-trained and, you know, they've got scientists on the crew and there's, these are definitely the best people to take on that job, but it's still, it might be an impossible task. So you talked about alien and arrival, and it's really interesting to contrast the two because in many ways they're very similar, but if you look at alien, alien is a slasher movie and it is a great science fiction film. Do not get me wrong. I love it, but it is at heart a slasher movie. It's a monster that is stalking people, and that is the most understandable thing possible. It's hungry, right? It wants to lay eggs or whatever. It has biological drives that are totally relatable. Uh, on some level, you feel for the alien, the xenomorph. You know, you, you want it to succeed on some level because it, it has, you know, recognizable needs and, and desires just like any human being. Arrival is fascinating because we start out from this position of these completely inscrutable aliens who become, by the end, incredibly lovable and sympathetic uh, without losing too much of their alienness. And I think that's why it's such a brilliant movie. They're both incredible films, but I think they do comp- completely different jobs. And so for The Last Astronaut, what I was really looking at was kind of combining those two in a way where the you know alienness of the aliens from Arrival is in fact the thing that's going to kill you. So it is your inability to talk to it, your inability to make any kind of sense of what it wants, your inability to communicate, even on the most basic level, right, is the thing that's going to end up killing you. And how do you get past that? How do you force something to communicate with you when it doesn't even recognize you're there? So I I want to switch because the, the horror element's fantastic and we could probably talk horror forever, but one of the interesting things I thought about the book, you know, sort of coming to an understanding of what it's about is that your main character is a woman astronaut who, while this is the backdrop of the story, at one point went on a, on a Mars mission that did not go terribly well. And it's created some some havoc, as it were. But and I was really curious about your choice to focus on Sally Jansen as your your primary character um, as a woman astronaut, you know, something that our own current program has has really struggled with of of sort of having a fairly fair system uh, and bringing in more women astronauts i mean no woman's ever been to the moon as it you know at least not that i'm aware of did a woman go to the moon did i miss it no no yeah (laughs) uh although that it's interesting because that's actually the the current program that's trying to get to the moon uh the artemis program is actually looking to send the first woman to the moon so that is something that NASA is very much aware of. So to do research for this book, I ended up talking to a bunch of astronauts, uh, interviewing them, which was amazing uh, and was a huge, huge, huge boost to the book. I think it, it's so much better because I talked to these people who have actually been there, right? And so one of the questions I asked was exactly that. Did you ever deal with sexism? Did you ever deal with misogyny in NASA or the government or anywhere, you know, as Trying to get it, because I had heard some veiled references to people on social media giving female astronauts a hard time. But all the astronauts I spoke to, the female astronauts I spoke to, agreed, no, it wasn't a problem. NASA was absolutely committed to diversity of, you know, on, on, on every level in 
creating the new astronaut corps. Now, that's not always been true. You know, the early uh, NASA programs were absolutely uh, designed with men in mind and did not take women seriously. And there are, there are some really sad stories but from that time, but that's 50 years ago. NASA, as it currently exists, is absolutely committed to women in space. And I think that that's a, that's a laudable thing. Now, the problem, of course, is not everybody agrees with NASA. And there are people on social media who don't think women should be astronauts. Those people are idiots, obviously, and they don't, we don't need to really worry about them too much, but they, uh, you know, they exist. So, you know, Sally Jansen has dealt with that, especially, and this is going to be spoilers for like the first five pages of the book. But so, uh, Sally Jansen in 2034 was going to be the first person to walk on Mars. That was her, that was going to be her claim to fame. And unfortunately, something went wrong on that mission, that mission to Mars. And so she had to turn around and come back. And so at the beginning of the book, she's been living for 20 years with being the woman who almost went to Mars. She is, you know, kind of living in seclusion and sort of dealing with the bitterness and the sorrow of not getting to be that person. But also, you know, the sense of failure and the sense that she could have done better somehow. Um, it's, you know, someone died on that mission, so she has survivor's guilt. And she absolutely starts from a position of just being broken by that. And it was very important to me to create this character who, you know, has something to prove, who has something to redeem, and who wants to go back into space and show that she is the great astronaut that she knows she can be. And I also wanted you to know right from the start, she is. There's no question. She is absolutely the right person for this job. Sally is an interesting character. I never really set out to create this this 56-year-old woman who was going to be the, the hero of my story, right? All my best characters kind of they just pop into my head, and I don't know where they come from, but they won't go away. This was very true. I, early on in my career, I wrote a book called 13 Bullets, which is about a vampire hunter named Laura Caxton. And Laura Caxton was a state policeman, policewoman from Pennsylvania who, it turned out, was gay. And I had no intention of writing about a gay policewoman fighting vampires. I was going to write a story about vampires, and she just showed up. Uh, and Sally Jansen is much the same thing. Like I was just thinking about this story and I was imagining who was there. It's one of my, one of my methods for writing a book is I imagine the last scene first, like the big climax of the story. And I think, okay, that's really cool, but who's there? Who is there at that climax? And that's how I end up getting my characters, right? Because I know that that person needs to be the heart of the story. And for this one, it was Sally Jansen. It was this woman who had this sort of tragic past and yet also had this incredible accomplishment she had gotten she'd risen through the astronaut corps she'd been the best and the brightest uh and so she'd had both this like dark moment of the soul but also is absolutely an aspirational character you know someone we can look up to and someone we can relate to yeah so she just kind of came out of nowhere and i and i'm really glad for it because i think she's one of the better characters i've ever created that's fantastic. Uh, so one thing it, you, you, know, you got me thinking about as you were sort of talking, you know, the, the, the research you'd done with NASA and, you know, how, how Sally Jansen came to be in her, her story of how she came to be. And it made me really wonder how, how you sort of view this work on a sort of pessimism optimism scale, because it begins, I'm going off of the, the cover blurb because we don't want to do spoilers, but it begins effectively with the space program kind of being scuttled. Right. It's not completely gone, but we're kind of done with the whole sending people out into space thing. But this horrific 
arrival or what we discover will become horrific. They don't necessarily know it from the start. This unusual arrival rebirths it again. But then obviously there's some hurdles of, of its own sort of variety. And so I was curious how you saw, I mean, especially on the issue of space on the space program, because it just sometimes seems maybe unfairly that we're we're not really reaching for the stars. And yet in this story, there is a sense that there is like a reaching out again, naturally with a, a different complication. Yeah. So on the pessimism scale, I would say this is definitely deep, deep, deep in the, in the dark depths of pe- pessimism. This is absolutely <laughs> uh, a worst case scenario. And, and I, I'm worried that readers are going to read this and think, Oh, I don't believe in space that I, David Wellington don't believe in space travel <laughs> or exploration. And that's absolutely the farthest thing from the truth. I have wanted to be an astronaut since I was a child, like since I was five years old. When I was like eight or something, I wrote to NASA and I sent them a letter saying, what do I have to do to become an astronaut? And NASA was very, very cool back then. They, I mean, they still are, but they, 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 uh, if you wrote this letter to NASA, they would send you a nice form letter telling you, here are some things you can do if you want to become an astronaut, you know, tailored to an eight year old. Like they knew how old i was like, <laughs> it was not like well you know you should join the military and become a test pilot it was like you should focus on your love for science and adventure but they sent this letter saying all the things i should focus on and do and then they also sent a, a manila envelope full of glossy photographs Ooh. of the saturn V rocket and the lunar lander and pictures of the moon and astronauts walking on the moon just incredibly beautiful photographs I kept this thing around until it fell to pieces. This this envelope full of pictures, official NASA photographs. They were so inspiring. I love NASA. I loved talking to these astronauts. Promise of space exploration, it it just, it thrills me to my core. That being said, this is a (laughs) horror novel. And I knew it had to start from a, a position of darkness. So in the 2055 of this book, NASA is on its last legs, absolutely. Climate change has led to sea level rise, which means that Cape Canaveral is a flooded swamp. The old gantries and launch towers are all crumbling into ruin in the muck. Uh, you know, and NASA itself still exists, but ha- its role has changed completely. So in this future, all manned spaceflight, crewed spaceflight is the proper term now, is done by commercial space organizations, private companies that look to make a profit off of it. And sadly, there's not a lot of great ways to make money in space until you can actually find an, an asteroid that you can mine for metals, you know, or if you're talking about space tourism. But short of that, space is a money sink. You, you need to pour a ton of money into, into space to make anything happen. Uh, so these corporate companies, these companies, these space-like companies have sort of, eh, they're not taking really good care of space. Like the, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot going on in Earth, or, Earth orbit in this book in 2055. NASA has been so defunded by the Congress at this point because of this that they no longer have an astronaut program. There's no point in training astronauts because there is no space station. There's nothing, there's no place for the astronauts to go. There's no spaceship they can use, right? So this attempt to get to Mars was kind of NASA's last hurrah. And 20 years later, they've all but given up. Except that there are still some people working at NASA who believe. 
people who have kept the faith and they are ready when the time comes to put something together. They know it's going to, you know, they don't have a, the budget they want. They certainly don't have the time they want, but they can do something. They can get one spaceship up there to meet this alien object and they can get one person to command the mission. And that's Sally Jansen. And so it's not completely hopeless. I will say that on the pessimism scale, there is still that little flicker of hope that we can still accomplish something that we can still help the situation, but it starts from a pretty dark place. <laughs> I won't <laughs> deny it. It is definitely a scary book, and it starts from some pretty dark places. I, 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 I hate, I shudder to think that some kid is going to read this book and think, oh, space is too scary. I don't want to be an astronaut anymore. Hopefully that's not the message they take away from this book. It's a pretty scary book, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that, that does make me want to ask one Simple question, I guess, because it's, um, I like horror, but I'm really curious because you write horror. What is it to you that's the draw to horror? What, what, why, why do you go to that? Horror stories are the oldest stories we have. Uh, if you think about it, you know, the first stories, you had a bunch of Neanderthals sitting around a campfire. Maybe there was a couple of magnets there too, if they, you know, let them in. And, and they, uh, they start telling stories to each other. What's the story they tell? The story is not, you know, oh, this is how Og met Blog. This is a, the story they're going to tell is about the giant bear that ate their friend. The stories that we tell about around campfires are horror stories. We like to scare each other. It's really fun. And we like to be scared. There is something, you know, we talked about there is something central to the human experience about exploration and adventure. There's also something about being terrified. There is something central to who we are that it's a very weird part of us, but it's there that wants to be scared, that wants that adrenaline rush. Uh, horror stories are universal. We all fear things. We all know what it's like to be scared. And, and every culture in the world tells horror stories. We always have, we always will. Uh, I think at heart of it, I mean, this is something I've, I've thought about a lot because when I started writing, uh, books, when I started publishing books, it was a time when science fiction was kind of on the way out. Everybody was like, oh, science fiction, who, who reads science fiction? Ugh, yuck. You know, obviously that sounds ridiculous now. <laughs> you know, when we're having this sort of renaissance of science fiction. But, uh, at the time, science fiction was kind of like the, the genre that couldn't perform. I didn't know that. So I, I came on the scene trying to write, trying to sell science fiction novels and just got turned down left and right. So I ended up writing what I thought was a science fiction novel, but it was about zombies. It got picked up and, you know, there's a whole story about how that happened, but it, it's, it was kind of my biggest success so far. And it was just off to the races. And suddenly I was a horror writer, right? Because I wrote about zombies. So I, I'd always loved horror. I loved Stephen King growing up in the seventies and in the eighties, uh, you know, and F.L. Wilson and Peter Straub and all the great horror writers, uh, had been part of my education, but I never thought of myself as a horror writer. I always thought of myself as a science fiction writer. And yet here I was writing about zombies and then vampires and werewolves and finding just how much I loved it because there is a deep core of our being that wants that, that wants to be scared. And so I had to figure out why as I was writing these books. And what I think I've come up with is there are so many scary things in our lives that we can do nothing about and that are not going to go away. We know that, you know, we're all going to die. We're all going to suffer in our lives and so on. I don't 
you know, sure, there's there's majesty and wonder and happiness in life too, but we all know that there are scary things out there that are real and that we can't stop. A horror story is the antidote to that. A horror story is your ability to read something that you know is going to end. You know there will be an ending to the story. Whether it's a happy ending or not, well, you get to find out. But when you read a Stephen King novel, you know that Pennywise the Clown is going to, you know, be challenged by the heroes, at least. And that maybe in the end, Pennywise will be defeated. And even if he's not, the book ends. You turn the last page and Pennywise is gone. And you get this wonderful sense of, oh, that's over. <laughs> this this wonderful relief of, oh my god, I survived that. Uh, even though you were never in any real danger, of course, but you, you your body doesn't know that. Your body has the reaction as if you were being chased by an evil clown. And so when the clown is gone, you feel just this calm come over you, this relief. And it is one of the best feelings in the world. It is a shiver that goes down your spine. You realize you're safe again. And I think that you know, horror is the perfect antidote for the horrors of real life that you can't escape, that, that go on forever. So I love horror stories. I don't think that they're as pessimistic as people necessarily think. I don't think they're as, you know, as perverse or sick. Uh, that's always what you get. I, I, I get people at cocktail parties coming up to me and they say, what do you write? I say horror novels. And they just kind of get, get this look in their eyes like, oh, I'm talking <laughs> to a psychopath, you know. <laughs> I'm talking to, to a homicidal murderer, a maniac. And, and, uh, and I'm not. I'm actually just, I am like one of the meekest, mildest people on earth. I'm just capable of imagining, you know, things with giant teeth that want to tear your head off. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a really fun experience to write horror. It's, it's fun to read it because in the end, it's not real. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, thankfully. Yep. <laughs> Because, whoo, I, I would definitely not want to be chased by either a zombie or a killer clown. Right. Uh, yeah. Those are, yeah, that's pretty high up there. <laughs> <laughs> Zombies are number one, because being eaten, sounds that sounds like a terrible way to go. Back when I was writing my zombie stories, uh, the most common question I would get asked by fans and readers was, what is your plan? How are you going to survive a zombie oh. apocalypse? <laughs> and my first thought was, well... For one thing, it's not real, so I don't need to worry about that. But the second one was, I probably wouldn't. Uh, I would probably be one of the first people to get killed. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> I don't have any special skills. I don't have any weapons. I don't have any plan on how I'm going to fight zombies. I don't want one. Honestly, I don't want to live in the zombie world. Like, after the apocalypse, no thanks. I, I like running water too much. I like penicillin. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, we've really, we've really had a great, this is great. Like, we're just, shooting the shit about horror and all of this stuff. This is fantastic. But let folks know where they can find you and learn more about The Last Astronaut. Well, uh, you know, you can find my website at www.davidwellington.net. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at at last trilobite. You can also just look for my name, of course, which is David Wellington. But if you really want, if you're interested in my books, I suggest you just go read one of my books. They're, um, they're, usually you can find one of them for like a dollar ninety nine uh, ebook out there somewhere, and they're all great. Every single one of them. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I think they're pretty good. Yeah, the, the book is called The Last Astronaut, and it's going to come out on July twenty third. This is going to be something special. I think I wasn't really prepared for this. I I wrote this book, and it absorbed so much of my life and my mind and my soul 
that I, by the end, I didn't even know what was going to happen with this book. But I'm starting to see this swell about this thing. Like people are excited about this book. Every review I've gotten so far has been just amazing, and, and I just. I'm really excited to hear what people think. Like, I, I think this might be the best book I've ever written. And, and if that's the case, awesome. <laughs> Let's see how far it can go, right? Well, awesome. So thanks again. And uh, thanks to our listeners for listen- joining us on Signal Boost today. Obviously, go check out Last Astronaut and all of the rest of David's wonderful books. And on that note, we will close out with some smooth jazz. No, no, that that's not going to happen. So awkward ending and scene. <laughs> If you would like to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or find us on Twitter at skiffyandfanty, our webpage skiffyandfanty.com, or you can even send us an email at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com. The intro music for this podcast was taken from Rock Thing by Creo. You can find out more about their music on freemusicarchive.org.